May it please the court, counsel. I'm here on behalf of plaintiff appellant Shane Boda today. To recover on a theory of strict product liability under Minnesota law, a plaintiff must establish three things. First, that the product was unreasonably dangerous for its intended use, which I'll refer to as defective, but I want to be clear. I, I mean that in the legal sense. Uh, second, that such condition existed when the product left the, the defendant's control. And third, that the condition was the proximate cause of the plaintiff's injury. This appeal today really focuses on that second element, whether the defect in the crane existed when the product left the defendant here viant control. <clears throat> and the question specific to this appeal is whether the evidence is sufficient when viewed in the light most favorable to Mr. Boda to create a question of fact on that. The magistrate below granted summary judgment, dismissal in favor of Viant, finding that there was not sufficient evidence, and we submit that was an error for two reasons. First, the magistrate noted, but then, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> but, then, but then disregarded evidence. <clears throat> noted but then disregarded evidence that the crane was not misused or mishandled prior to the date that the A2B inexplicably fell off the crane. And second, the magistrate held the plaintiff to a higher standard than is appropriate under controlling law. Uh, with the court's permission, I'd like to address those in reverse order. So starting with the appropriate standard here. Notably, the, the magistrate judge in her order dismissing the case and this is found on page, page 40 of her order. Uh, and this is discussing the negligence aspect, but the same analysis applies whether we're discussing negligence or strict liability here. Uh, about eight lines down, quote, the inability of Boda to reasonably eliminate the possibility that improper handling left the crane, excuse me, that improper handling after the crane left Viant's control caused the ATBD to fail is equally fatal to his claim for negligence. Respectfully, Your Honor, that's not the standard. The standard is not reasonably eliminate the possibility. It's reasonably eliminate the probability. And that's a key difference here. A plaintiff is not required under Minnesota law to show that it is to eliminate the, the possibility that there was other actions that contributed to this device falling off the crane. Everybody agrees that, the, that once that device fall, falls off the crane, the crane is legally defective. The, the question then is, well, what caused that A2B to, to fall off? The evidence in the record from Mr. Galarnik, plaintiff's expert, plaintiff's expert who, by the way, was unchallenged. There was no Daubert motion. His qualifications to testify here are, are in essence, conceded and at least are not challenged now on before this court on appeal, is that the, these devices don't simply fall off. If in, and if it fell off, it, it's because it was negligent, or excuse me, not, not negligently, not correctly 
installed or secured to the crane. Uh, it's in essence, either a uh, fatal or a defect in, desi in design or manufacture. This specific crane actually had had the anti-two block fall off previously uh, before the before the crane was delivered to Viant leases these cranes out, and they had leased the crane this specific crane to another entity. And when it was returned, it was returned with a missing anti-two block. Yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean it fell off, though, does it? it, it I mean, because the reality of these anti-two block devices, when you look at them, is that uh, they can be jury-rigged around so they don't work, and people can take them off because they don't work, because there does seem to be in the record some indication that there are at least some crane operators that are not sold on these things as being absolutely beneficial to their work, or if I misread what's in the record. Cor correct, Your Honor, and I, and I apologize. It's not, it's not my, well, it was not my intent to represent to the court that the fact that the, that the device or the crane was returned to Viant prior to it going to Brown without an anti-two block is evidence that it had fallen off. It but could have, though. But, but evidence that it was missing. True. Um, and, and yes, it, it's, it is possible that the previous lessee purposely removed it or something else happened to it. The, the cases that are cited in the, both in the magistrate's order and now on appeal by the respondents, I address a, a different situation. In each of those cases where the court, whether it be the Minnesota court or this court um, or, or any other circuits, have found that the evidence is not sufficient in those cases, all stem from a more significant lapse of time than is present here. In, you know, in Kerr, the, the Dish case uh, from the Minnesota Supreme Court, it was the plaintiff had the dish in her possession, I, I believe, for six or seven months, had used it several times. Here, we have four days. Four days. Interestingly, the exact same amount of time that was present in the Holkestad case, the, where the Coke bottle exploded after being removed from the plaintiff's vehicle. And the Minnesota Supreme Court in that case, the majority said, that's sufficient. In the absence of any evidence that the bottle was mishandled, there is no evidence that the crane was mishandled here by Brown. And again, I want to be clear, there's no evidence that the crane was mishandled by Brown tank from the time it was delivered until the time the anti-two block fell off. In the briefing, there's a suggestion that Brown Tank was mishandled the crane by continuing to operate it after the anti-two block fell off. That really speaks to the causation element, which the, the magistrate correctly found, at, at the very least, a jury question of, you know, can Brown Tank continue to operate this crane <coughs> without the anti-two block by, by utilizing this workaround? Does that inoculate Viant? And the magistrate found, no, it does not. At, at the very least, it was foreseeable. What about the movement of the crane in a way that uh, at least some witnesses felt was like more at an excessive rate of speed? But in any event, the the uh, the crane was swaying in such a way that 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 it was unusual. And that and I think the inference that they're trying to get us to draw is that there may have been damage to the A2B. Um, while that thing was being moved, and that would have been on Brown for 
having moved it in such a fashion. I, I, I agree that that's the inference that respondents are trying to get the court to make. I don't believe that inference is warranted, Your Honor, and for, for two reasons. First, as Your Honor pointed out, that is potentially the testimony of some witnesses. Mm-hmm. There's also evidence that the operation of the crane was within the, the usual course. This is a rough-use crane. Mm-hmm. This is, crane is designed or should be designed to handle such use. So if there's the testimony from Mr. Larson, the crane operator, who is, by the way, the sole witness who actually saw the incident when the anti-two block fell off, Mr. Harris conceded in his deposition that he didn't see it. You know, he, he saw the crane being operated. Uh, and then when asked if he remembered what happened, his testimony, and this is on, uh, in our appendix at page 186 to 187, well, do you, well, I guess, no, I don't remember. I remember the two block, or I mean the headache ball. I didn't witness it, but the headache ball was kind of whipping around. So to the extent that there's testimony that this crane was arguably, I don't even want to say being mishandled, but to the extent that Mr. Harris's testimony could be read to suggest that, that's a fact question. And that is potentially a, a perfectly valid argument for the respondents to make to a jury and for a jury to determine. It is not a question for the magistrate judge to determine at the summary judgment stage. Turning back to uh, that first issue of the, the magistrate finding, well, there's no evidence of what happened before May 22nd. And that's on, uh, among other spots that she repeats that in her order, page, the top of page nine uh, of her order, where she, or I guess it starts at the bottom of page eight, where she says, critically, there was no testimony from any witness about how the crane was operated on any of the days prior to May 22nd, or whether anyone other than Larson or Harris had access to it or operated it on any of those days, end quote. But if you turn two pages before that, You have, this is her summary of Mr. Larson, the crane operator's testimony. He inspected the crane each day and filled out the daily mobile crane inspection report. Larson marked an X on the inspection report. That meant the ATBD was, quote, in working order. Mobile crane inspection report indicated the condition was the ATBD was good. Larson testified that he was the one who did the daily inspections that week. Um, admittedly, he does not know whether anyone else would have been operating the crane, but there's no evidence to suggest that anybody else had. Uh, Mr. Harris also testified that, quote, to the best of his knowledge, the ATBD was functioning properly when the crane was delivered. Daily crane inspection was basically a walk-around inspection, very similar to the inspection that Viant did uh, before the the pre-delivery inspection. He recalled having operated the crane himself at some point before the day of Boda's injury uh, when asked whether Larson was, quote, the crane operator during those days, end quote, uh, referring to the days from the date of delivery until the day, the day the ATBD fell off, he testified that quote Larson pretty much operated the crane, end quote. In addition to all of that, Mr. Larson testified. This is on Appellant's Appendix, page sixty-seven, that whoever was running the crane would do the inspection report, and it was him. Uh, Larson did the inspections all week. Uh, he testified that. They were in the general course of moving sheets around. This is on the day of May 22nd, and the ATBD just snapped on its own, and, quote, there was no reason why it should have come off there. 
uh, and that Larson had not done anything that would cause the ATBD to fail. Before I run out of time for my principal argument, I want to just note uh, that this court's reversal of the summary judgment award in the Hughes case, uh, Hughes versus American Jawa, is particularly instructive here. There, the court was presented with a plaintiff's expert whose opinions were, in the words of this court, based entirely on conjecture. Uh, if the motor, when presented in a hypothetical, if the motorcycle in that case had been properly, if the motorcycle had been properly maintained in the two and a half years since it had been manufactured, then it would be reasonable to assume that the problem was caused by a defect in design or manufacture. This court commented that the testimony was conjectural, that it was abstract, that it failed to account for the possibility that the engine locked in that case due to improper maintenance, that the conclusion rest, rested on, quote, somewhat tenuous grounds, and the expert had dubious qualifications. Nonetheless, this court reversed summary judgment and found all of those credibility determinations and the weighing of that evidence is for the jury, not the court. The facts here are stronger, and with that, unless the court has any questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time to rebuttal. I don't see any questions. Mr. Maureen, when you're ready. May it please the court. Counsel. I am David Maureen, and I am here on behalf of defendants and appellees, uh, Viant Crane LLC and Viant Crane Service LLC. Uh, for purposes of this case and this appeal, uh, we treat them as a single entity. I'll refer to them as Viant. Uh, I intend to argue for about 10 minutes uh, and then yield the rest of the time to Mr. Nissen, who's here on behalf of Brown Tank. Uh, the issue in this case is the application of a narrow exception uh, to a requirement um, that when a plaintiff relies on res ipsa loquitur uh, to prove a product's liability case uh, under Minnesota law, there's a requirement that uh, the thing that caused the injury is under the exclusive control of the defendant. If that is not the case, if the defendant did not have the exclusive control of the instrumentality, then the plaintiff has an additional burden to introduce evidence that reasonably eliminates the possibility of mishandling or misuse of the thing between the time that it left the exclusive control of the defendant and the time that the injury or the incident happened. Um, Minnesota law is, is pretty clear on that. Uh, you see that in uh, Lee versus Crookston Coca-Cola Bottling Company. Uh, that provides the elements for the strict products liability. Um, Mr. Bowman uh, read those uh, elements to the court, and I, I believe he cited a different case, but, it, but it's the, the correct elements. Um, but Lee goes further, and Lee says at page 329, also liability is not imposed where the injured party has not eliminated the probability that improper handling by intermediate par parties may have caused the defect. 
Uh, we see that in Trost. Uh, that's an Eighth Circuit case from 1998, which requires the plaintiff to prove something more than the mere fact that the accident happened. Western Surety and Casualty Company uh, says the same thing. Uh, it frames it in the, uh, the context of circumstantial evidence. A plaintiff may rely on circumstantial evidence, but that evidence must be there, and it must not require the jury to speculate. Uh, the main case that the parties uh, evaluate and analyze in the briefs is the Delayden case. And the quote for Ed, and that's also the, the main case that uh, the magistrate relied on in granting summary judgment to Viant and Brown Tank. And in that case, it says a plaintiff is not required to eliminate with certainty all possible causes of an accident, uh, but it is sufficient if the evidence reasonably eliminates improper handling or misuse of the product by others than the manufacturer, thus permitting the jury to reasonably infer it was more probable than not that the product was defective. Now, fundamental to whether we're looking at this from a product liability uh, point of view or a res ipsa point of view, fundamental is this, uh, this notion of exclusive control. On the product's liability side, we had the plaintiff has the burden to prove the defect existed when it left the defendant's control. If it's res ipsa, exclusive control is an actual element of a res ipsa claim. In this case, Mr. Uh, Mr. Boda has failed to meet his burden to introduce that evidence. What we have is we have a gap in the evidence between the time that the crane was delivered and the time that the A2B fell off. The crane was delivered on May 19th, and we don't have uh, a lot of evidence of the, the details of the situation and how that happened and what happened. Uh, we know that the operator, Chris Larson, was not present when the crane was delivered. We know that the foreman, Mike Harris, was not present when the crane was delivered. Um, from that point until May 22nd, so that's four days later, we have no evidence whatsoever about how the crane was used or operated. Weren't there uh, inspections done during that time period, though? There were inspections done. Um, we think that inspection is different than evidence of use and or um, operation. So Chris Larson testified that while he did operate the crane during that time, he didn't know if anyone else did. We have no facts as to whether or not anybody else had access to the crane. We don't know where the crane was stored. Uh, we don't know were there other pieces of equipment on the site. These are all questions that we, we just don't know. All we have is uh, these morning inspection sheets. With well, uh, it is evidence, right? And, and what I'm wondering of is, is that it, all the things you're describing are all possibilities that may have happened, right? Um, and what we're really talking about is you, the, the burden is to remove the probability that something has happened, right, uh, in the interim while it's been in the exclusive control of the other party, right? So it leaves, leaves the manufacturer or the owner. Uh, it's in some kind of shape. It's inspected evidence that it's all okay. Uh, then you've got it inspected you know, regularly, which would tend to indicate that there's not been any horrible misuse being done on this crane during those three or four days, right? And then there's a failure four days later. And you've raised, there's, there's, there's all kinds of things that may have happened, but we have no evidence that it may have happened. What exactly is the burden on the plaintiff to show that those possibilities uh, 
need to be eliminated as opposed to relying on probability? And should we be at all concerned about the, uh, the use of the word possibility by the magistrate judge in light of the fact that the description and the cases cited to were all referring to probabilities anyhow? I mean, is, is it just, you know, um, drafting imprecision or, or is it, or is it an indication that the, that the magistrate judge really was? Um, saying that they've got to eliminate every possibility. Because you are raising real possibilities. The question is, are they probable? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll address probable, right? Isn't that the... <laughs> I, I'll, I'll address the second part of your question first. Uh, no, I don't think there is a meaningful difference between probable and possible okay. in this context. Uh, I think, in fact, the... Uh, um, the quote from DeLayden that I shared earlier uses neither word. All it says is it is sufficient if the evidence reasonably eliminates improper handling or misuse of the product. So I don't think uh, the fact that the, uh, the, the magistrate used possible uh, when, when it should be probable or vice versa, I, I don't think that's relevant here. Uh, with respect to the first part of your question, what is the plaintiff's burden? Uh, it, the plaintiff has the burden to, to introduce some evidence. Uh, an absence of evidence... Uh, or a lack of evidence is not sufficient to create an issue of material fact. So, uh, for example, the plaintiff could have introduced evidence that uh, the keys for this crane were stored in, uh, in an office trailer somewhere, uh, that it was locked, that the, uh, the site had a fence surrounding it that was gated at night. Um, th those are just some examples of evidence that the plaintiff could have produced, could have asked in, in deposition, and, and didn't do. So what we're left with is the plaintiff has an affirmative burden to produce some sort of evidence, and they haven't done that here, except for the inspection sheets, which again, just so the state of the product at a snapshot in time, they don't have any evidence about how it was used, uh, and, and they don't show whether it was used properly, misused, uh, what have you. And, and do I understand that, that the device was stored for a short period of time, did, and did your folks get a chance to look at it? Um, are, are you talking about after it fell off? Yes, after it fell off. No. So um, I, I think that's an important factual point. Uh, the device fell off the crane approximately two weeks before Mr. Boda was injured. Uh, Brown Tank, uh, as Judge Erickson, you pointed out, uh, some operators, uh, for whatever reason, find ways to circumvent these critical safety devices, and that's exactly what happened here. The, the device fell off, and we don't know what happened to it. Nobody had the opportunity to inspect it. Uh, when Viant Crane finally got the call from Brown Tank that there was something wrong and, and saying, hey, come out and fix this, it was June 8th. It was after the accident had happened. And even at that point, uh, Brown Tank did not inform Viant that there was an, an injury. They just said, hey, this broke, come out. Uh, so Viant hired a, a technician to come out. Uh, repair it, and I, I believe that person may have thrown it away because there was no, he, he had no idea that there was an injury, that there was going to be need for uh, any evidence. Um, with uh, the few remaining seconds I have, I'd like to briefly address uh, the issue of the expert opinion. Um, I think 
Mr. Galarnik's expert opinion uh, is faulty for the same reason uh, that Mr. Boda's claims are faulty. Uh, it's based on no facts. And the case law says an expert's opinion must be based on facts. That's from uh, Hudson versus Snyder body, uh, Snyder auto body. Um, Western surety case uh, kind of describes a uh, an analytical shortcut where when we see the word if, uh, that is indication that perhaps an expert uh, may be speculating. And, and we see that uh, in Mr. Galarnik's affidavit, paragraph 25. Uh, that's on appendix page 16. He says, um, if properly manufactured and installed, an A2B will not just simply fall off. That's, that, that's pure speculation. We have no facts uh, to support the claim uh, for res ipsa or the product's liability that there was a defect present, and we have no, uh, and Mr. Galarnik has no facts. Sometimes if is like indefinite, but if doesn't sound very indefinite in that particular sentence, right? I mean, if the expert had said when, you know, rather than if, it makes no difference in the English language, right? I mean, if in that particular sentence seems rather a definite statement, says if it's manufactured correctly and if it's installed correctly. And all of that would reside on your client, right? I mean, th that in the end, Viant's the person that sends it out. And so if they've been manufactured it correctly and if they'd installed it correctly, it doesn't fall off, right? And if, and if it's not manufactured correctly and it's not installed correctly, it comes off your lot in an unreasonably dangerous condition, period. Your Honor, I see I'm out of time. May I respond briefly? Yes. Um, so I, I think you are correct. However, um, Mr. Galarnik also stated in his affidavit that there's no evidence of misuse. And I think that gets us back to that's the wrong burden. It's not the defendant's burden to... No, I get there are other problems you might find with that expert opinion. I was just kind of taking issue with your... Because I think that when we say generally if is a sign of speculation, it is in a lot of context. But it's not in others when if, if, if the if is all stuff that's under the control of the person with the duty, then it doesn't matter. That is fair, yes, and um, I, I do agree uh, that if, if as a linguistical marker always meant speculation, your job would be much easier. Uh, Boy, wouldn't but, it? But we don't, we don't have that in the English language, so there, there is some ambiguity there. Thank you very much. Thank I appreciate you. It. Mr. Nissen. Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court. My name is Todd Nissen, and I'm here today on behalf of Brown Tank. And there are just a couple of things that I would like to talk about, um, starting with uh, the expert report, um, the, just a couple of additional points to, to make out with respect to the um, decision of the district court judge to um, exclude that from, from evidence, and therefore it's outside of consideration for purposes of the summary judgment motion. Um, the standard of review, is, I'm sure you all well know, it is a clear abuse of discretion. It's not a de novo review uh, with respect to 
the admissibility or inadmissibility of that decision. Um, number two is that uh, um, plaintiff's expert does not have any more factual information than any of us have. Um, his opinion is based on um, a very fleeting momentary um, uh, observance that uh, Mr. Harris made um, concerning whether or not the uh, the anti-block was swinging wildly or not, not exactly knowing what swinging wildly means. I don't think there's a, a definition in the dictionary for that. Um, so I that, take it your client does not have records as to who used the crane and when? Uh, well, Your Honor, uh, the uh, burden of proof is on the plaintiff to explore and to try to develop its obligation under the law, which is to show um, that, uh, or to reasonably eliminate improper mishandling or misuse. And so those questions um, were touched on during discovery, but they were not conclusively um, investigated. So, so nobody asked you, asked you if you had any records that, as to who used the crane? Um, because that the, seems to be one of the big issues here is that there were, might have been other operators. Oh, absolutely. In fact, Mr. Harris testified that Mr. Larson was not the only operator. Um, we also you don't know, have any records that show who operated it? I'm not aware of any records, and I'm not aware that uh, if you look at the deposition testimony, some of these questions uh, could have been asked and, and flushed out by plaintiff's counsel, by Mr. Boda's counsel, and it just simply wasn't. So, for example, we know that Mr. Larson and Mr. Harris were not present when the crane was delivered, and yet there was no question uh, raised by Boda's counsel, okay, well, who was present when the crane was delivered? Who got it off the off the uh, the rig? Who unpacked it, if you will, from its shipping condition? Who moved it the first time? Who moved it the second time? Why did they move it? How did they move it? Those questions are all unknown. And then we know that Mr. Harris himself operated the crane, at least at one point, but then he was not asked the follow-up question as, well, how many times did you operate it? How did you operate it? Under what circumstances did you operate it? Did you potentially you know, mishandle the crane? These questions simply weren't asked. This information was available. The interrogatories and, and depositions could have drilled down on, give me a list of everybody who touched that crane from the time that it was delivered until the time of the accident. And I want to talk to each of those individuals and find out what they did and why they did it and how they did it and under what circumstances they did it. And the record is, is, is empty with respect to that. And I want to point out the obvious, which is the absence of evidence is not the same thing as a genuine issue of material fact. Fact issue is I say the red, there was red light, the other party says there was a green light. Now we've got a genuine issue of material fact. If the plaintiff simply doesn't uh, carry its burden of proof and establish its elements under its cause of action, um, then summary judgment's appropriate. I see I'm out of time. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Mr. Bowman. Counsel for Brown argued that, or suggested that Mr. Galarnik's opinions had been stricken or had been excluded. I disagree with that. I, I just want to point out that the clock up here is not running. I don't know if that's, thank you. 
Uh, I, I would, di- would disagree with that, Your Honor. And, you know, footnote 7 on page 16 of the order, the magistrate's order said, while Viant complains that Galarnik's opinions are, quote, speculative, end quote, Viant does not challenge Galarnik's credentials as an expert in this field, nor does Viant specifically move that Galarnik's opinions be excluded under Daubert. Um, turning back to Mr. Marine mentioned, uh, made, I, I think, the same mistake that the magistrate judge did when he was up here, where he said that a plaintiff has to reasonably eliminate the possibility. You know, judge Erickson, you pointed out, you know, does it really matter when there's a distinction between possibility and probability? We would submit that absolutely it does. Uh, and while Mr. Marine said, you know, whether it's possibility or probability or vice versa, it's not vice versa. It's probability. Possibility is not the correct standard. And and does it make any difference if the cases that are generally cited by the magistrate obviously set forth the, I mean, they're citing the right case law. And and what I'm wondering is whether or not we have just a a, a moment of of, um, uh, maybe uh, drafting uh, imprecision or if it's that she applied the wrong standard. And and that's my real question. I I would submit that she applied the wrong standard, that that this is not simply a matter where, when the opinion was being drafted, somebody you know inadvertently used the word possibility. The, the magistrate's order views this through a possibility lens. Uh, you know, I, I want would direct the the court's attention, you know, Judge Malloy, to your opinion in the the Hickerson versus Pride Mobility case, four seventy F third twelve fifty two, where the court found that the circumstantial evidence need not be so strong as to compel the jury to rule in plaintiff's favor, and where multiple inferences may be possible, is for the jury rather than the court to resolve the factual disputes. I see I'm out of time. Unless the court has any questions, we'd respectfully ask that the court reverse the summary judgment award and remand for further proceedings. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank the parties for their arguments here today. The case is uh, um, submitted and uh, taken under advisement. We will uh, get uh, back to you as soon as possible.